Well, uh, I just want to say welcome to River City Church. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you. I am looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, just want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, if there are any ways that we can help you get connected to the community here at River City, we'd love to be able to do that. So come find me or Becky or any of the people on the worship team or somebody you saw on the, the small group slides. We'd love to help get you connected and, and get to know you better. So uh, additionally, as we study God's Word this morning, if there's anything that you have questions about as we study, or maybe I said something that was confusing, then I feel free to come ask me about that. I don't have all, I don't always have all the answers, but I'd love to be able to help you in whatever ways I can. And so uh, feel free, like you can come ask me questions and you can talk to me. I'd love to be able to help you study God's word and understand that better. So uh, this year we have been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. And so for the past few chapters, what we have been seeing is that Jesus is increasingly revealing and clarifying his identity as the Messiah. That's the whole theme of the whole book. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the promised one that God promised in the Old Testament would come and set all things right. That would, he would usher in God's kingly rule and reign once and for all. And so finally, at the end of chapter 16, we see the disciples get it. For the first time, right? Jesus, he asked Peter, who do you say I am? And finally, for the very first time, Peter answers with the right answer. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You see, but what we saw last week as we studied the, in, at the end of Matthew 16 and beginning of 17, we saw that Jesus was the Messiah. He just wasn't the Messiah anybody was expecting or that anyone really wanted. You see, the Israelites, they were desperately hoping for a messianic king to come in power and overthrow the Roman government who had oppressed them and, and conquered them. You see, they were, they were wanting, they were longing for a Messiah who would come and set their situations right. But see, that's not what Jesus had come to do. You see, Jesus hadn't come to conquer Rome. He hadn't come to establish this earthly kingdom. Instead, he had come to conquer the greater enemies of Satan and sin and death and, and to establish a heavenly kingdom that would never fade. And, and you see, he hadn't come to set their situations right. You see, Jesus had come to set them right. And the way that he was going to do that, the, the path to his glorious victory that he was going to win for his people, this, this rescue that he was going to procure for his people, it wasn't going to come through a throne. It was going to come through a cross. You see, we saw last week that Jesus isn't just the triumphant messianic king of glory. We saw that he is the humble servant king, the one who has come to suffer and die for the sins of his people so that they might be able to be with him. You see, and from this point onward, for the rest of the book of Matthew, everything is leading towards the cross. See, it's the, it's the final movement of Matthew's gospel, these, these last ten or so chapters. The, it's the last major turning point in Matthew's gospel. From here on out, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. But don't be mistaken. See, Jesus isn't preparing them for the end. He's preparing them for the beginning. It's the beginning of his kingdom here on earth. And so over the next couple of chapters, in the next couple of weeks, in chapters 18 through 20, we're going to be taking a look at this. There's kind of this fourth section of Jesus' teaching. It's a, kind of a longer section of Jesus' teaching in these, in these three chapters. And it's kind of the fourth chunk of Jesus' teaching that we're really going to see here in the book of Matthew. We're going to be here for the next couple of weeks. And, and what, we saw, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to be revisiting much of what he was speaking about year, a few years prior when he was in Matthew 5 through 7 was speaking preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we are, he's going to be talking about what his kingdom looks like, what his kingdom looks like, how you enter it, what the, what the values of the kingdom are, what relationships look like inside of his kingdom. He's, he's fleshing out for people, what does it look like to be his kingdom people here on earth? 
And what we're going to see and continue to see is that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kind of kingdom. In every way, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kind of kingdom. And what we're going to see is that the, it's a kingdom like, unlike any other. You see, throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is painting a picture of a kingdom that is in stark contrast to the ones that we know. It is in stark contrast to the ones that we know. And, and in doing so, in painting this contrasting picture of his kingdom, what Jesus is doing is he is graciously confronting us. Because what's happening is Jesus is highlighting for us how the default mode in which we relate to ourselves, in which we relate to others, the default mode that, we, that those relationships are based on is at odds fundamentally with his kingdom values. You see, but what I hope over the course of these coming weeks that you will see is not just Jesus graciously confronting you, but also Jesus graciously, humbly offering you a better way. A way that actually leads to life. A way that actually leads to joy. A way that actually leads to fruitfulness and multiplication. A way that actually leads to blessing. See, and as we begin this last section of, or this, this fourth out of five section of Jesus' longer teaching in the book of Matthew, what we're going to see is that the characterizing mark of life in Jesus' community, his kingdom, is humility. See, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. In his kingdom, the way up is down. You see, greatness isn't found in seeking status or in being served, but in seeking to serve others, especially, as we'll see this morning, those who are weak and wandering. You see, greatness in Jesus' kingdom is marked by taking a position of confident humility towards God and towards others. And the humble position, that that confident humility that we have before God and others, it gets worked out in a concern for the good of others instead of your own especially those who are weak and wandering. And so in light of those truths, I want to pray this morning, and then we'll dive into our passages we begin to study. I hope that God's word will be good news that both confronts your heart this morning, but also invites you into life with him. And so let's, let's pray again, and we'll dive into our passage. Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we just humbly say, we really need you. Because I studied this week, I felt like you have been convicting my heart about ways that my heart is not in line with your kingdom values. God, and I I trust that you'll be doing the same. God, not not because you want to bring about guilt and shame, but because you want to bring about our good, but more than anything, your great glory in all things. And so, God, we need you to help to transform and renew and shape our hearts so that we become a kingdom people that that actually reveals the good news about your kingdom. And so, God, we we need you. God, I need you to fill me with your spirit so that as I teach this morning, it would not just be wise words or right words, but words that have power to, to change God, I can't do that. Only you can. God, and we need you to make our hearts able to receive from you. God, we don't have the ability to receive your word without you being the one that that enables our hearts to do it. And so we ask that you would. God, for our good, more than anything, for your great glory, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. begins this way. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the child to him, and he placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, uh, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if the, uh, to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of all the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through who they come. 
And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. And see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see my face of my Father in heaven. And what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and, and go look for the one who has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. It's the word of the Lord. So in our passage this morning, what, what we're going to see Jesus doing is he's, he's laying out what life in his upside-down kingdom looks like. Throughout these next couple of chapters, Jesus is talking about the relationships that characterize life of people in his kingdom. And this morning, especially what Jesus is highlighting is the upside-down nature of greatness in his kingdom. And there's three things I want to show you as we study this morning in our passage. We're going to see the picture of greatness. We're going to see a pattern of greatness and we're going to see the precedence of greatness. You see what I did there? That was pretty clever, right? Three Ps, hopefully it'll help, right? <laughs> so the picture of greatness, the pattern of greatness, and the precedence of greatness. This morning we begin, Jesus shows us the picture of greatness. So our passage begins, the disciples are asking Jesus yet another one of their historically bad questions. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I just really appreciate the disciples. In, early in life, I think I look down on the disciples. It's like, how could you ask such terrible questions all the time? And I'm like, the older I get, the realize how terrible my questions are most of the time. And so more often, I'm just grateful for them. Like, oh, I'm not the only idiot. This is so good, right? So we see the disciples, they begin our passage by asking one of their historically bad questions, right? They had literally, I'm not joking, they had literally just seen Jesus transfigured on the mount before them, literally radiating the glory of God, and they want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom. It's like... In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 9, we find that they had just been spending the preceding journey, their walk to where they were going, arguing amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom. And so they asked Jesus, can you just tell us, just let us know which one of us is the greatest. It's like, it's just kind of this surreal situation. It's like, it's like hearing LeBron James calling himself the greatest player of all time after you've just watched a Michael Jordan highlight reel, right? You're just like, did you see nothing? Were you even paying attention? I, I'm not sure you saw what was really happening here. I think we missed Charles Barclay watched an interview. He's like, I'm just going to slap the next person that says this. It's just ridiculous, right? He's not wrong, right? He's not wrong. See, Jesus' response to their question is kind of like that, right? He reveals that while they may know that he's the Messiah, they still have no idea. They don't even know what the first clue about what it means to be truly great is. They don't, they don't have the first clue about what his kingdom is really like. And in verse 2, Jesus calls a child to him, and he, and he, says, not, he says not only that the greatest in his kingdom is the one who takes this lowly position of a child, he says, but that unless you take the, that position, you can't even enter his kingdom. You see, those are incredibly strong words. It's a, in the original language, it's called an emphatic negation, which means it's the strongest possible way of saying something will not happen. You see, Jesus is trying to wake them up to the reality of how far off base they really are with their thinking. 
So the question we have this morning is, what does it mean to take the lowly position of a child? And, and what is this picture of greatness that Jesus is painting for us here? Well, to understand what's going on here, you, you first need to have a frame of reference shift, right? See, children in the ancient world were seen a little bit differently than children in our world, right? See, today in our world, children are incredibly important. In, in a lot of ways, in our society, children are kind of worshipped as little gods around which everything in life rotates around, right? You see this all the time, right? In this child-centric parenting, right? In which, like, every possible thing is about, like, the joy of this little kid, and there's no possible way you could actually discipline somebody or, or tell them no, right? Because it's all about, like, this perfect kind of situation with see that's like the epitome of kind of the the excess of the way that our our society views children that wasn't the way children were viewed in the ancient world just spoiler alert that's not how historically children have been viewed now don't get me wrong here children in the ancient world they were loved they were seen as a blessing but they they weren't despised but they certainly were not the center of attention you see children were not high and mighty they were low and weak One commentator writes it this way. He says, The most powerless members of ancient society were little children. In most of ancient society, age increased one's social status and authority. And as such, children had no status. They had no power. They had no privileges. Get this. Apart from what they had received as total dependence of their parents. Children had no status, no power, no privileges except what they had received from their parents. You see, and that's the attitude that Jesus is getting at. You see, Jesus' followers are not great achievers who earn some incredible, who, who kind of carve out this niche of their greatness in his kingdom. It says, Jesus is kingdom people. For all they have and all they are, they depend on the Father who has given it to them. They cannot earn a status. They cannot get a privilege. They have no power of their own, no way to gain it themselves. They are wholly, entirely dependent on their Father in heaven who has given it to them. You see what Jesus is saying? He's he's telling these disciples, he's saying, I have spent the last three years preaching to you. I've spent the last three years talking to you about this gospel of grace. You see, he says, until you get that you are a sinner just like everyone else who had no status and no power and no privilege before God, until you get that the only thing that you actually deserve is punishment for your sin, not blessing, not, not privilege, until you get that like a little child you aren't loved or accepted or adopted into God's family because of your high status, but in fact, in spite of your low status, until you get that, Your entrance into my kingdom, until you get that Jesus' kingdom, the way you get in, is not based on who you are and what you do, but on who Jesus is and what he has done and your faith in him. Until that clicks, you will never have the attitude of a child in Jesus' kingdom. You see, because you will always think that you have earned it and you have deserved it and there is something about you that has weaked your way in or that has earned God's favor, that you are better than someone else, that you are more worthy or more honorable or more privileged and that's a lie from the pit of hell. And Jesus says, unless you, have, unless you take the lowly position of a child, not only will you never be great, you can't even get into the kingdom. You see, because entrance into Jesus' kingdom is entirely based on what he has done, not on what you have done. And in our world, what happens is people think that Jesus is like this add-on. He's like, he's like the thing that makes you just better to get over the hump. 
Right? That's not how the Bible talks about who Jesus is. The Bible talks about you as a flaming pile of garbage. Right? The thing that you bring to Jesus on your best possible day is worthless rags to him. And Jesus is the one thing. He's not the thing that sends you over the top, that just kind of adds a little bit to you. Jesus is the one thing that makes you clean. He's the one thing that makes you right. And without him, you have nothing to bring. You see, until you get that, You will never have the attitude of a child. D.A. Carson sums Jesus' words up this way. He says, being childlike is about recognizing your vulnerability and your absolute dependence on God. You see, Jesus says you have to take the position of a child. A child is completely vulnerable. They are totally dependent on their parents. Jesus says that's the kind of attitude you need to have with God if you're going to be a part of my kingdom. See, this is the essence of humility. It is an accurate view of who you are before, you, before God. You are vulnerable and entirely dependent. You see, the truth is that apart from the grace of Jesus, we stand before God as mutinous rebels, condemned in our sin, hopeless and helpless. Our, our status as God's adopted children, as members of, king, of his kingdom, has nothing to do with your greatness. You see, and it's only when that truth clicks in your heart that the reality becomes clear that you'll be able to become like a little child who is greatest in Jesus' kingdom by being wholly dependent on the king. But it's really important that you see one other thing about what it means to be a child in Jesus' kingdom. You see, children don't just understand they're vulnerable and they're dependent on their parents. You see, children who are not abused, I will say this, children understand that they are loved. You see, they understand that they're loved by their parents and that changes everything. Even as I try to discipline my kids and shape their hearts and help mold them, I always try to close any disciplined conversation I have with them by saying, Emma, Caleb, you know that I love you, right? Because I love you, you can obey. My heart for them is that I love them and I long for their good. And more than anything, even in the discipline, I want them to know that I love them and I long for their good. My kids, every morning, they run to me. They run to me every morning. They hop in my lap. They want to be held. They want to be enjoyed. And they know that there is nothing that would keep me from holding them. They are loved not because of what they do, because of who they are. You see, children get that. They get that it's not their status. It's not their power. It's not their privilege that makes them loved. It's who they are. You see, when you realize that you've been adopted into God's family and that in spite of who you are and in spite of all that you have done, you are loved and enjoyed and cherished, you need to hear me, that frees you. That frees you. I know that all of us do not have that kind of a relationship with our parents. I know that this world is full of sin and has marred the relationships that we have with family oftentimes. But Jesus says, this is the kind of relationship that I tell you that God wants to have with you. He's a good father who loves his kids desperately, who longs for their good. You see, when you get that, when you get that you are loved, that you are adopted, not based on what you have done and who you are, but based on who Jesus is, that frees you. You see, people pursue greatness because they are looking for something. They're looking for validation. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for worth. They're looking for love. They're looking for acceptance, right? They're pursuing greatness so that they could receive something. I just read an ESPN article this week about Kevin Durant. I'm sorry slash not sorry about all the NBA references this morning, right? But it's for your good, right? Um, 
Kevin, so Kevin Durant is a, is a well-known basketball player in the, in the NBA. He, he'd been doing everything he could to win a championship. And, and then when he finally got one back in 2016, he, he found that it wasn't fulfilling. There's a quote from a, a coach that he was working with that summer after the championship. And the coach was just saying it was a really rough summer for him. What he thought would fulfill and give life and satisfy, he found wildly unfulfilling. You see, now this summer, he, trained, he transitioned to a new team. Because what is he looking for? He's trying to find something to, to fulfill and to satisfy. You see, he, he didn't get the accolades that he wanted by getting a championship with the first team that he went to. So now he's going to try to go to a new team to get the accolades and to receive the proclamation of greatness that he couldn't get in the other way. You see, he's always comparing himself to others. He wants to be the greatest, and it drives him, but not in a healthy kind of way. You see, Kevin Durant, he's famous for creating fake Twitter accounts in which he just kind of like flame roasts everybody who says anything negative about him. You see, what happens is that he is a slave to a desire for greatness. And he can never rest. You see that over and over and over and over. He'll never rest. You see, and Jesus says, when you get that your status as a member of his kingdom means that you are an adopted and loved child of the king of the universe... When that clicks in your heart who you have been adopted by, your status, your privilege, your power that Jesus has given you, that frees you and it actually enables you to rest. You see, you won't need to pursue your greatness anymore. You won't need to pursue your own status or your own good anymore. Instead, you'll be free in a, in a confident humility to be radically concerned about the good of others, the, the status of others, the privilege of others instead of your own. You see, and that brings us to the second thing that we see about greatness in our study this morning. We see the pattern of greatness in Jesus' kingdom. The picture is that of a lowly child. And the pattern we see of Jesus' kingdom is that when you have the confident humility that comes from recognizing your unmerited status as God's beloved child, instead of being concerned about your own status and your own good, instead you are freed to be radically concerned about the good of others especially those who are weak and wandering. Two ways we see that pattern of humble greatness getting worked out in our passage. The first is in a commitment to being a stepping stone instead of being a stumbling block for the weak. And the second is to a commitment to being a caring shepherd who pursues the wandering. See, greatness in Jesus' kingdom looks like being radically committed to being a stepping stone instead of a stumbling block for the weak. Verse, verse 6 reads this way. He says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. See that phrase, the uh, cause to stumble. What it means is it means is to trip up. You see, a lot of times people have read this passage and say that it just means to tempt someone into sin. But what Jesus is talking about here is, is he's, saying, he's saying not just woe to anyone who tempts someone to sin. He says woe to anyone who trips up those who are young or weak in their faith. One commentator writes it this way. He says anything that gets in the way of effective discipleship is a stumbling block. It can be an unkind word or a cold shoulder. Those things are no less a cause of stumbling than outright temptation can be. You see, that's what Jesus is doing in verse 10. He's calling out the disciples for being a stumbling block to those who are young or weak in their Christian faith. He says, that they're, he says don't despise these little ones. You see, because what's happening is the disciples in their, in their pursuit of their own greatness, in their focus about their own status, what they're doing is they're, they're looking down on everyone else, right? I'm better than these ones. I've got to make sure that my status is high enough, right? I'm comparing myself to everyone around me so that I can measure up to be the greatest, right? You see, I've seen 
firsthand the real consequences that can happen when those who are in leadership, when those who, who have positions of authority in, in spiritual realms look down on a brother or sister, whether they're young in their faith or maybe they've sinned, and instead of reaching out a hand to help pull them up, instead of encouraging them with the truth of the gospel, instead of reminding them about Jesus' grace, instead of walking with them in the repentance, they have this air of suspicion that kind of permeates the way that they relate to this person now. It pervades that relationship. It's a, I'm not sure I can trust you anymore. Not, not really sure how to think about you anymore. You see, what happens is it just ratchets up the guilt and the shame that people are already feeling, and it drives them away from God and away from that truth and away from community. You see, what it's doing is putting up a stumbling block that trips them up. They're not being a stepping stone. They're being a stumbling block in that way. And don't get me wrong. It's not just by looking down on people that we create stumbling blocks. Jen Wilkin writes this. She says, when we are primarily concerned with being the greatest, we are most in danger of harming the least and the littlest. Often this is through our example of self-elevation or indulgence or simply by just being casual about sin that causes someone of weaker or younger faith to stumble. In college, I was a huge uh, Mac computer fan. Uh, I was more of an evangelist for Macs than I was for Jesus, to my own shame. <laughs> I remember one particular night I was spending, I spent a few hours trying to convince two of my friends uh, that they desperately needed new computers and that they should get this certain kind of Mac laptop that I was trying to, to urge them to get. And it was one that I wanted to get but couldn't at the time. And, and uh, they, they, it was going to be a bunch of money. They weren't cheap. And, and I remember later that week, uh, Hannah, who was just a friend of mine at the time, I remember her coming up to me and calling me out on that. I remember her just saying, you are trying to convince your friends to spend money that they don't have on something they do not need so that they can fulfill something that won't actually satisfy. Man, that like cut to the heart. You see, I was trying to convince my friends that what they needed most was stuff, not Jesus. And my efforts to convince them to what they should spend their money on, it was going to keep them from being generous to their own churches. It was going to keep them from, in fact, going to a conference, an university conference that we were trying to get our friends to go to at the end of the year. And You see, what I realized that remembered, I remember in that moment feeling the weight of God's gracious conviction You see, what had happened is I had been a stumbling block for my friends, not a stepping stone. It was one of the first ways God started to get a hold of my own heart with regards to the way that I was pursuing and longing for the stuff of this world more than I was longing for him. And that needed to end. I needed to put the kibosh on that. So I remember for a while I needed to block a few few tech websites that I read every single day. And they weren't sinful. They weren't bad. They weren't evil websites. But the truth is, is that they were feeding my longing for stuff. And so I just needed to cut that out of my life for a while. I remember I had saved up some money that summer that, for the intention of giving it to my local church. And, 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 uh, and I, the truth is, I hadn't given it yet. And the reason, I was like, oh, I'm just getting around to it, really. But the truth was, is that I was hoping that I might be able to just save up just enough to get a new computer. You see, I remember the Spirit of God just graciously convicting my heart. said, give it. And it wasn't a command, it was a gentle invitation. And so I needed to, and I did. You see, if I was going to be radically concerned about the good of my friends who were younger than me in their faith, 
then I was going to need to, if I was going to serve them by being a stepping stone for them instead of a stumbling block for them, then I was going to need to be radically committed to my own holiness. See, verse 8 talks about it this way. It says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Verse 9 says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. You see, Jesus calls us to have a radical kind of intensity as which, in which we oppose sin. Right? We can't just toy with it. We need to put it to death. David Platt sums it up this way. He says, we, when we are zealous about holiness in our own lives, we will be zealous about protecting one another from sin. Yet when we are casual about sin in our own lives, we will, we will casually lead others to sin in their lives. You see, in a world where we will inevitably face, face temptations at every turn, in Jesus' kingdom, we must work to protect one another. I'm going to ask you this morning, how is God calling you to be zealously concerned about the holiness of your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Where are you being casual about sin in your own lives? And I just, I need, just need to say this out loud because it's been on my heart for a couple of months now. Some of the movies and TV shows that I hear some of you guys talking about, it's a problem, Right? You see, no one who is trying to follow Jesus and increase their love for him should have an HBO subscription. You don't need that. There's nothing that is going to be fruitful and multiplying for Jesus' kingdom on that network. That's not how it works, right? You don't need that, right? And I hear so many of you talking about not just that, but all other kinds of things. And even by some miracle, that's not, that's not consuming your heart, that's not, that's not hurting your own heart, then your, your talking about it is just enabling people who are younger in their faith, who don't know any better, to spend time watching it and pursuing it. It's legitimizing those kinds of things. And I just want to encourage you, even if that's by some miracle not harming your own heart and your own walk with Jesus, for the sake of those who are younger in their faith who are going to be harmed by that stuff, you need to cut those things out of your life. You see, we need to be radically committed to the holiness of not just ourselves, but our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't be casual about sin. You must be ruthless about it. Warren Wearsby, he writes it this way. This was so challenging for my own heart. He said, humility begins with self-examination and it continues with self-denial. Jesus was not suggesting that we maim our bodies for harming our physical bodies can never change the spiritual conditions of our heart. You need to hear that. Harming your physical body is not changing the spiritual condition of your heart, right? He says, rather, he was instructing us to perform spiritual surgery on ourselves. You see, removing anything that causes us to stumble or, or that causes others to stumble. You see, the humble person lives for Jesus first, for others next, and he puts himself last. He is happy then to deprive himself even of good things for the good of his brother. You see, greatness in Jesus' kingdom looks like being radically concerned about the holiness of others, about being a stepping stone rather than a stumbling block. And sometimes that feels costly. It is worth it. Jesus is worth obeying. He is worth following. He is worth submitting to. He is worth surrendering to. And so people who are part of Jesus' kingdom, they're committed to being a stepping stone rather than a stumbling block for those who are young or weak in their faith. But there's a second thing we see in our passage about how that great, confident humility gets worked out. It says, in the second way, we see the pattern of greatness getting worked out in our passage is in a commitment to being a caring shepherd who pursues the wandering. 
In verses 12 through 14, Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd who has gone after a single sheep who has wandered off. Now, there's another parable about lost sheep in Luke's gospel, and it's a different parable in a different kind of situation. And in that parable in Luke's gospel, the lost sheep is someone who's not a Christian. They're lost, right? But in Matthew's parable here in, in Matthew 18, the wandering sheep is one who is a follower of Jesus, a young one who has wandered off in their faith. You see, and Jesus says the pattern of greatness in his kingdom looks like a shepherd who instead of cutting his losses and leaving the one wandering sheep to die, instead of cutting their losses, he goes after it. See, the pattern of greatness in Jesus' kingdom, it looks like having a pastor's heart for wandering sheep. I'll just be honest with you, as your pastor, going after wandering sheep is not really that fun. It's also not super rewarding. In fact, often it feels like you're banging your head against a brick wall, right? It's hard. It's difficult. But Jesus says that's the kind of heart that, the, that Father God has himself. You see, it's much more fun, just, it's much more enjoyable just to say with the sheep who are listening and growing and being fruitful. You see, but the kind of humility that gets worked out in a concern for others comes from the fact that you have been pursued. When you were wandering, Jesus came to pursue you. And when you wander, he beckons you and calls you back by the good word of his Spirit's conviction in your heart. You see, it's not just a begrudging or even a dutiful pursuit of wandering sheep that's the mark of greatness in Jesus' kingdom. It's a joyful pursuit of it. It's one that rejoices that a wandering sheep is found and brought back into the fold. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. He's a wandering sheep who at the end of the story, he returns home. And instead of rejoicing, the older brother is bitter, right? He felt like his father was celebrating his brother's failures. He, he felt like his brother, who hadn't been faithful, was getting all the things that he had wanted for being faithful. And the important thing to note is that Jesus was telling this parable not just to everyday people. The audience of this parable was the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That's who Jesus was telling the parable to. You see, they were the older brothers. They didn't rejoice as lost sheep were coming home. They were bitter. Because even though they had done everything in their power to keep all the rules, they still didn't sense the love of God in their hearts. And they were bitter. See, in our passage this morning, we see the, the pattern of greatness in Jesus' kingdom. It doesn't look like the faithful yet bitter obedience of the older brother. It looks like a father who, while his son was still a long ways off, was watching for him and looking for him and came running for him. A father who rejoiced that his son, who was wandering, had been found. You see, and that brings us to the third thing we see about the greatness in Jesus' kingdom. We see the precedence for greatness in Jesus' kingdom. See, if you've been here long enough, you know that I love lawyer shows. I think it's fascinating. If I was smarter in another life, I'd try to be a lawyer. It's not happening, but, you know, I can dream, right? And uh, that word precedence is kind of a legal term, right? It's a lawyer term. And what it means is the, it's the authoritative example. If there's a law that is the precedence in something, it means that it is the authoritative example on which everything else is based or interpreted, right? And so in our passage this morning, we see that God himself is the one who is setting the authoritative example of what it means to be great in his kingdom. You see, he exemplifies the pattern of greatness in his own kingdom. It's not a, his kingdom is not a just do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. His kingdom is a do as I have done, 
do as I have done for you, to you. See, he is characterized by a radical concern for the good of others. Verse 5 says, he is the one who has welcomed the weak. And so in welcoming them, we welcome him also. In verse 6, we see that he is so seriously concerned about the well-being of the young or the weak in their faith that he severely threatens anyone who tries to trip them up, either purposefully or accidentally. In verse, verse 10, we see that he has assigned angelic representatives who have direct access to him on behalf of those who are spiritually weak or young in their faith. In verse 14, we see like the prodigal son, the God, that God is a good shepherd who has pursued and rejoiced in the return of wandering sheep. You see, the precedence for greatness in God's kingdom is set by God himself. The one who has stooped to take the humble position of a child for the good of others. You see, in Philippians 2, we see the Apostle Paul points us to Jesus as the ultimate precedence the ultimate authoritative example of humble greatness in his kingdom. Chapter 2, verse 5 begins this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in his appearance as a man. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Later in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he, he sends Timothy to the Philippians and he commends him to them. He says this way, For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus. You see, Jesus has looked out for your interests instead of his own. He laid aside his status and his glory and his power and his privilege so that you might have it. He was the highest of all and he became the lowest of all. He did that out of concern for you, for your good, for, for your status before him. And so he served you when you were weak and he pursued you when you are wandering. You see, and when you get that, that changes you. When that clicks in your heart, that fundamentally changes you. See, instead of being wanting to pursue greatness, you want to pursue a great humility because you realize that the greatest one of all became humble for you. You see, you begin to respond to that unmerited status as his beloved and adopted child, and you begin to move out into the world in a confident humility. You're confident and full of joy because that you have your status as a beloved child, and you are full of humility because you realize that you do not deserve that, and you cannot earn it, and even better news of all, you cannot mess it up. And so you are zealously concerned for the good of others, especially those who are weak and wandering. You see, you begin to become a picture of greatness. As you live out the, in, in response, as you see the picture of greatness, you respond by living out the pattern of greatness in response to the precedence of greatness for the sake of the only one who is actually great. The one who humbled himself so that you could be great in his kingdom. You see, there's one who is greatest in the kingdom, and his name is Jesus. You see, he's not just the high king of glory. He's the humble king who has come to suffer and die for your sins so that you might be able to be with him, so that you might be concerned not about your own status, but about the good and the status of others. You see the good news about Jesus' upside-down kingdom? You see why it's good news that the way up is down? You see, if the way up was up, we would all be hopelessly, hopelessly out of luck. 
But the good news about Jesus' upside-down kingdom is the one who was the highest became the lowest so that he might love and serve and empower you so that you might become the highest by becoming the lowest. You see, it's our joy every week to celebrate the ultimate picture of greatness in Jesus' upside-down kingdom through the symbol of communion. See, communion, what we're remembering is all that Jesus did. We're remembering how high he was and how low he went. You see, we're remembering his radical, humble concern for our good. The greatest of all became the servant of all so that, we, so that he might save all those who would put their faith in him. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way, shape, or form. Instead, it is an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, to, to behold him so that we might become like him. You see, that's the invitation of communion is, a, is an invitation for us to remember the one who has come for us. The bread and the juice, they're in the back. And during our time of worship at the end, you can go back and you can take communion. You can dip your bread in the juice. You just go back whenever you feel led. Um, you don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus so as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you put your trust in Jesus, if, if he is your king, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. But if that's not true of you yet, if you are here this morning and you are investigating, what does it mean for Jesus to be king? I want you to know you are welcome here. I, in fact, this church got planted so that you might be here. But I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion. See, communion is about remembering what Jesus has already done, not about figuring it out for the first time. And so if you have questions, you are welcome here. Ask your questions. Come find me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about it. And as we take communion, as we sing and we talk with God, I would encourage you, what is keeping you from living in the confident humility that is the picture of greatness in Jesus' kingdom? What is keeping you from that? And I just want to offer one insight this morning as we close. See, Jesus in his words this morning, the beginning of the passage, he says, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom. You see that word change, what it means is to go a new direction, to go a different direction. The word means to repent. You see, maybe this morning, the thing that's keeping you from walking in a confident humility before God is the fact that you have not turned from your own ways to his. See, maybe this morning what you need to repent of is your self-sufficient lack of dependence on Jesus. You see, you can't come to God thinking that you bring anything to the table, that Jesus just kind of puts you over the top. You see, you need to come to God completely dependent on him, knowing that on your best day you don't have anything to bring, and instead that what you need is Jesus, and that what he has done is enough. Some of you this morning, you need to repent of your self-sufficiency and your lack of dependence on Jesus. But maybe this morning, what you need to repent of, what you need to change and turn from, is a longing for greatness in this world. You see, this world paints a picture for us every day of what greatness looks like. And it looks like having power, and it looks like having authority, and it looks like having money, and it looks like having influence. And that's not the picture of greatness that Jesus paints for us in his kingdom. I just want to ask you this morning, where are you tempted to elevate yourself, to make much of yourself? And how is that causing you to stumble or others who you have influenced to stumble? Maybe this morning you need to repent of your casual concern over your own sin and its influence over others. I just need you to hear this morning, my goal is not to guilt you or shame you in any way, shape, or form. 
But you cannot toy with sin. You cannot skirt around the edges of it. Sin is not to be played with. It is a disease to be killed. It needs to be eradicated. It's not about how close can you dance to the line. It's about how far from the line can you be. You see, if not for your own good, then for the good of others around you, be radically committed to your own holiness and to that of others for their good, for God's glory. Maybe this morning, lastly, what you need to repent of is the fact that you see God as a boss, not as a good father. See, some of you are here this morning and you have lived your whole lives in which God is not a good father. He is a boss whose approval you must win every day. Who's, who by your own effort and by your own work and by your own hardness that you are the one who keeps his approval or who works every day to get it and every morning you begin a new work day realizing under the, under the lie that you are believing is that you must earn his approval again every day. You see, and I want to call you this morning not just, to, not just to reject that but I want to call you to repent of that, to turn from that, to believe that it is a lie, not the truth, to reject it in its entirety and instead to ask the Father to show him as, Ro- as Romans tells us, ask the Spirit to pour the love of the Father into your heart. You see, without the love of the Father, you will never have a confident humility. You need to hear this. I cannot be more clear. Without the love of the good father, you will never have a confident humility in him. And you will never be able to move out into the world as his kingdom people who live for the good of others. Because you will be desperately trying to seek your own good. It's only when you realize that you are loved by the good father, the king of all. It's only when you realize that your, your status and your standing before him is secure. Not just low, but it's as high as it could possibly be. It's only when that clicks in your heart that you will be set free to actually be Jesus' kingdom people. Right? That's the only way you get free enough to actually live for the good of others rather than your own good is when you know that your good is taken care of by the king of the universe. So this morning, some of you, you need to repent of the fact that God has been your boss, not your good father. And by his grace, I would urge you, ask him. Ask him to pour out his fatherly love into your heart. Some of you, that is the thing that is keeping you from walking in a confident humility before him. And without that, you can never be his kingdom people. So ask him by his grace for your good, for his glory, that he might empower that to to become true in your heart. See, Jesus' kingdom, it is an upside-down kind of kingdom. The way up is down. And that is good news. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning. King Jesus, we come before you this morning. And what we want, God, what we acknowledge before you is that our hearts are not the picture of greatness in your kingdom all too often. God, the picture that we look to is the one the world gives us, not the one that you give us. God, the pattern of greatness that we pursue is not the one that you give us. It's the one the world gives us. And God, we need you to set the precedence for greatness in our hearts. God, you have. Help us to see it as true. 
God, we come before you. We say we need you. We need you to be the one that shapes and renews and transforms. We need you to be the one that causes us to be a, a people that is characterized by a confident humility that comes from knowing we are loved by you. And so, good King Jesus, I pray this morning that you would help those who have been relying on themselves to repent and change so that they might become like dependent children. God, for those who are here this morning who need to, I pray that you'd help us to repent of our casual view of sin and its impacts on the lives of others. I pray that you would help us, Jesus, to to repent of our longing for greatness in this world. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to repent of seeing you as a boss instead of the father that you are. King Jesus, we need you. We need you to change us. And so we ask humbly that you would so that we might be your kingdom people who live in a confident humility, who are radically committed for the good of others because we are loved by you.